Greetings in the, the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names. How privileged I feel and a trust together we feel to have that name as the center of our worship service this morning and the central theme, I trust. For some time I have felt uh, uh, moved to... Uh, so the Lord was moving to preach a message out of Daniel chapter 1. So we want to do that this morning using that as the main body of the message. But before we uh, look at Daniel chapter 1 as an introduction to the message, I'd like for us to consider the power of influence. Now, we uh, think of influence, the definition of that... We're well familiar with that, I trust, but uh, the dictionary would just give it this way. The, the ability to produce an effect on others or the power to change or affect someone or something. Well, for example, we know that uh, our culture and, and uh, uh, our social uh, associates and so forth, uh, they they uh, do affect us and uh, probably have an influence on us. Certain cultures produce certain kinds of lifestyles. We, we know that. We're, we're molded uh, largely by our background and our, on our culture. And uh, culture is just simply a way of life for a group of people. It consists of the behavior and the beliefs, the values that they accept, and sometimes without even thinking much about them, giving much thought to that. But uh, then, you know, we have the influence of individuals, of people in our lives that we, we know and have known and have been a part of our life, maybe from birth, our parents, of course, uh, tremendous influence in, in our life and so forth. But others then, as we, uh, you know, as we grow and we tend to take our own way and try to find our own place in life. You know, we have our associates, we have our peers, and uh, they, uh, they have an influence on us, and they, uh, it can be good or bad. Uh, there's good influences, there's bad influences, but it's up to us, uh, choice that we, uh, what we do with those and how they affect us. There's an old saying that, uh, I remember from way back that show me your show me your associates, show me your company, and I'll tell you what you are. Um, and so we are we're affected by by uh, people in our lives, by our culture, and by where we find ourselves. And and uh, I believe that. Uh, you know, there's individuals, as I think of my own life, that definitely had an effect on my development and on my character and and uh, where I find myself today. So, influences, they usually leave a mark on our life. They usually, they can steer us either right or wrong. And uh, so that's a challenge for us. But as the... Uh, Leaving that now and going to the book of Daniel and using Daniel chapter 1, the uh, 
first uh, 16 verses as the uh, main body of the message here. This morning is our text. Reading from that, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Asbanas, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the princes of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the princes of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall, me, then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzer, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenance appeared fair and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzer took away the portion of their meat and the wine which they should drink and gave them pulse. I think we're familiar with that account. Uh, probably have heard it if we were raised in Bible-believing homes, Christian homes, we've heard it all our life. You know, I look at accounts like this, and as again, we remember that all Scripture is given for, for our prophet. It's given for a reason. It's not just given to fill up the pages between the covers. And I look at Scriptures like this and when again and again, and it seems like you find, you find uh, the Lord gives you understanding. He opens up your eyes to truth. or You, you glean new thoughts. There's always nuggets there, it seems. And... Um, so uh, looking at this portion of Scripture this morning and uh, considering uh, what we can learn and what it is for us, and it is more than just a good story or just a good account. 
of Daniel and his friends there. So, as we look at this, and <clears throat> excuse me, like the first of all, I'd like to think a little bit about who Nebuchadnezzar was. Well, <clears throat> he probably needs little introduction to us. We think of him as the uh, the uh, ruler, the great ruler of the kingdom of Babylon at that time when when Babylon was carried away, when the southern kingdom of Judah was carried away, um, was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and carried away. We think of Nebuchadnezzar as the one who made the golden image and 90 feet tall and everybody was to bow and worship that image. And we know that as a result of that, <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace. And we know the, that account and uh, uh, other things about Nebuchadnezzar that uh, we we uh, think about. And uh, so, but but just as we think of Nebuchadnezzar and 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 uh, what was what was happening here, he was of course, as I mentioned, the king that that captured that conquered Judah and destroyed Jerusalem carried away many of the captives and many of the Jewish captives to Babylon during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And uh, so, um, this was in, and uh, uh, this was now where Daniel and his uh, three friends, along with many others from, from Judah, found themselves, they found this in themselves in this setting here. And the reason for that was because of the apostasy, the falling away of this of the kingdom of Judah. Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom, the divided kingdom at that time. But because of their falling away, and uh, uh, that uh, they found themselves. In fact, as we look at this account here, if you notice there in verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And, and you, you wonder, well, why, you know, why would God do that? Uh, why, uh, why would he uh, deliver his people into the hands of, of, a, of a wicked king, of a, a, a godless king that, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, there was a reason for that. And uh, I'm just going to uh, remind us of that. We, we see that the... Uh, in Second Chronicles, um, one of the it's a, one of the saddest scripture, the sad scripture. It's a tragic scripture that we read in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six. In regards to this, it says this way, and I'm just breaking in here in chapter thirty-six and verse fifteen. It says, "And the Lord God of their fathers." This is referring now to the southern and the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom at this time that the the kingdom of Judah. It says, the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, who we read about, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. 
He gave them all into his hands and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes. Remember, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All these he brought to Babylon, and they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. This is precisely now where Daniel and his friends find themselves. And the reason for that, it's very sad, isn't it? We always say the word of God has a remedy and a solution for every everything in life, and I believe that. But we just read there in that scripture that the Lord send his prophets, his messengers to these people. And they warned them and spoke to them until there was no remedy. And then the, the fact is, the word of God does have the solution for every problem in life, as long as people are willing to repent. But when there's no repentance, when people are not willing to repent, then you run out of solutions, run out of remedies. It's just as simple as that. And it's sad. It's, it's why it's such a, to me, it's one of the most tragic scriptures that we have there in Second Chronicles there in regards to this people. Now, this is, again, where this setting is here in Daniel chapter 1, where they find themselves. Well, back a little bit to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar actually was quite religious. You realize that? He was quite religious. And I find that interesting. He was quite a religious man. Now, in, in our society and setting, you know, in our generation, when we say someone's quite religious, we automatically, you know, connect Christian to that. But, you know, that's not the, that's not the case. I mean, we're not fair and we always do that. There's many, many, I you know how, been a while since I've looked how many religions there are in the world, but, you know, there's hundreds of them. But Nebuchadnezzar was a religious man. And we see that, again, you notice, if you notice verse 2, it says here that when it speaks about Lord, the Lord God giving Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands, and it says he, with the vessels of the house of God, this is speaking of what Nebuchadnezzar did with them. Note here in verse 2, it says, he carried them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. You see that? He was a religious man. He carried him to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So apparently he had a treasure house where he kept the treasures of what he considered his gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's actually interesting to note that he was a religious man. But he worshipped pagan gods. He did not worship the God of heaven, the one and only true God. That's the difference. So there's many, many religions there, you know, and, and this was just, he, he was a worshiper of pagan gods, pagan deities, as we say at times. And um, so this is where, what was happening here. And um, he did not give recognition to the God of heaven. Well, then the second thing we want to think about here now, let's, let's uh, focus on the four Hebrew children here, who they were. Now, the... Uh, the scripture refers to them as children. I'm not sure whether it was because of their age category where they were at at this time or not. But 
As we do a background check on these on these four Hebrew children here, as the scripture mentions, um, I'm not sure what their age is. Nobody really knows exactly, but their age is supposedly they were maybe in their early teens, could have possibly been as young as 12, 13, probably at the oldest at this time. They might have been, they could have been in their mid-teens, upper teens, but they were young men. They were, they were, as we think of, a, of, a, of a, these young men here. And um, so, uh, as we as we look at a background check of them, let's notice some things it says about them. It, it says in verse three, it says that they were of the king's seed and of the princes, and that's noteworthy. We remember that that they were of the king's seed, and they were they were they were uh, uh, obviously their lineage was of royal lineage. And then, of course, it goes on there and says that the uh, the uh, requirements that the king had about them in verse 4, it mentions there in verse 4 what the king required of them, the qualifying requirements. And, uh, and so even those requirements would tell us as we think of a background, their background being of royal seed and of the princes and the children that they were definitely... Uh, not considered ordinary people. They were of the royal family, and um, um, above, they were probably above average in character as well, the king's requirement there. So, as I look at that, and uh, can we, we think about these four uh, Hebrew children and that Nebuchadnezzar required and what he was looking for here, I find myself, and I found myself, uh, a number of times asking, well, really, what did he have in mind? What really was Nebuchadnezzar, what was the underlying motive uh, for choosing these four uh, Hebrew children as he did? Well, I'm not sure that I am not here to tell you exactly what it all was. But, you know, we could ask the question, did, did Nebuchadnezzar, did he need more wise men? Did he need more astrologers? Did he need more magicians? Did he need more sorcerers? I don't really think, personally, I'll just give my opinion and you can correct me. That's what testimony time is for. Not just corrections, but encouragements as well or whatever. Your thoughts. But I think, I think Nebuchadnezzar, I think there had to be something a little more there than that. I don't think he really was in dire need of more wise men or astrologers and so forth. I think he really had something in mind there. And uh, and bear in mind again, as I mentioned in the introduction to the message about the power of influence. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we see here that one of the instructions he gave he gave the instructions of how they were, what they were to do with these. It says, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And also, verse 5, they were appointed a daily portion of the king's diet. What a privilege, many people would say, to eat at President Trump's table, especially if you were a carnal person and had an appetite. But, uh, so... What really did King Nebuchadnezzar have in mind? And we see here in this process here, one of the first things here, we now as we go to verse 7 here, there was a name change involved. He changed the names. Well, what was wrong with their names? 
And why did their names, why did he want to change their names? I don't know what you think about that. I think they had good names. They had godly names. If you look and, and, and you study, and I'm not going to go through and define what all these names meant. But they had godly names. The name Daniel and all those names, they meant something. They meant something as pertaining to the kingdom of God. Whereas the names that they were assigned, their new names that the Chaldeans gave them also had significance. But they were named after pagan things. They were named after pagan gods and so forth. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want those names. That wasn't, that didn't fit the, I don't think it fit the uh, program that he had in mind for these men. They, it would get rid of these names here. We'll call them, as today we'll call them Michael Jackson and those kind of names instead of, you know, some of the names we have. Uh, so, so, oh yeah, you know that. So as we think about what Nebuchadnezzar really had in mind here, I think that it's, it's noteworthy that these things are recorded and that we think about these things of what really was happening. So, Nebuchadnezzar, they were to be, they were to be, you know, they were very intelligent young men, obviously. They were above ordinary, probably in intelligence of the best that they could, they could discern that the, um, those that were assigned to pick these men could discern. And so, you know, learning was not a new thing to them. They'd probably studied much. I'd say Daniel and his friends uh, probably had studied the chronicles of the kings and uh, the kings before them. Very obviously that they had, because somewhere they had learned and had a developed a respect for the fear of God and for personal boundaries in their own life. But that didn't fit the king's plan. That wasn't what the king was thinking about. He wanted to educate these men here. They were to be educated. They were to be indoctrinated. They were to be brainwashed, whatever uh, other terms you want to use there, in the Chaldean school of learning. That's what the king, that, that was the, we give them a name change and we educate them, we indoctrinate them. At the end of three years, it says that they were to be qualified to stand before the king as part of his staff having acquired all this learning of the Chaldeans and being educated in those things. They were to be qualified for that and conditioned and brainwashed and indoctrinated so that the king could use them in his service with his religion and not the religion of the kingdom of Judah that was supposed to have. So, and then we notice that their diet entered into the Two, they were supposed their diet was to be changed. They were to have a diet change. They were to have the, the diet of the Chaldeans. Now, you know, they were simply, they were to wine and dine at the king's table. Well, as I mentioned earlier, he would turn that down, especially in the carnal, you know, the carnal side of man who would probably wouldn't turn that down. And, uh, uh, but I think there was more involved. They realized there was definitely more involved uh, than uh, than just a diet. As you as you can, as I think about of what the whining and dining at the king's table would have consisted of, I don't know. We can just imagine. But it was probably more than eat or drink. There was probably a lot of festivities and banquets and worship worshiping of the idols and gods and so forth. 
we don't know exactly what all went on, but I think we can imagine what that would have opened the door to had they said, well, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Our presence will be at the king's table daily, and uh, we'll do that. The point of it is, again, remember the power of influence and what it does to us. We want to keep that in mind as we think about these things here, as we think about what was taking place here. Well, just in conclusion of, I think, of what Nebuchadnezzar probably had in mind or was part of his program, not only to have them as part of his staff and wise men and so forth, but that he could use them, that these men, after they were educated and brainwashed and indoctrinated in the culture and the society and had lived among the Chaldeans and had embraced their learning and so forth, that uh, they would have, in three years' time, they would largely maybe have forgotten and at least pushed in the background what they had been taught from where they came from and would have embraced the king's religion. Now they would have embraced the king's, their new names, their festivities, their dinings, and their education, and so forth. They would have embraced the king's religion. And uh, so I think that's really what King Nebuchadnezzar had in mind. And then with that, you know, if you study the history of what had happened, there was there was a remnant of people left in the uh, kingdom of Judah there in the southern kingdom. He didn't carry them all over to Babylon, the poor of the land and so forth. They were left there. In fact, he had assigned, I believe it was Zedekiah, I think I have that name right. Zedekiah, he assigned Zedekiah to be king there, which was of the lineage of the kings there and probably related to Daniel and Shadrach and and Meshach and Abednego, if we want to use their Chaldean names. Uh, they're a little easier for us to remember for some reason. I guess we switch over to that too. But uh, <clears throat> then they're Jewish names. But it seems to me that the king really had in mind probably that they would be a liaison that, uh, to the people there or a go-between, a go-between where he could relate back these men being of royal seed, being of the princes, being of the royal family, that they would be a liaison to connect back to the southern kingdom where he could, you know, if he could indoctrinate part of the royal family into the religion of the Chaldeans and into embracing their way of life, it would make it a lot, it would be to his benefit and to his profit in relating back to the to the uh, Jerusalem and to those people that were still there and keeping the uh, the relationship there using them as a go-between man. It seems to me that that was at least part of the king's plan, more than just that he needed more wise men, that he would indoctrinate these men. You know, we bring these strange people in here and we have got to assimilate them into our culture and into our thinking and our religion and our way of life and so forth. Uh, sound like a good plan for the king, I think. And, and I'm thinking that that probably was really the real thing he was after. Yeah, he could use their wisdom, and we know that he profited from it tremendously in the fact that <clears throat> later on in his dream and, and, and the uh, dreams that he had, and he used Daniel, and, uh, and God used Daniel in a miraculous way in that. But, <clears throat> so... We know this account. We know the account. Uh, the king's plan, whatever it was, didn't work. Didn't work. The reason it didn't work is these young men indeed had remarkable qualities. They had qualities. Uh, they were.
qualities above their peers. Uh, one of those qualities was that they had established spiritual, scriptural boundaries in their life that they wouldn't cross. Now, the king didn't know that, and he hadn't counted on that. But uh, of all the qualities that they had, whether it was their intellect and their learning and their education and so forth, the most outstanding quality was that they had established a spiritual boundary in their life. They had lines drawn that they would not cross. And those lines came from the Word of God, from their teaching and so forth. I don't know what these young men had been taught, but I expect, I think I might have mentioned earlier, I expect that they studied the, chronolo- the chronicles and so forth of the kings that were before them. I expect the type of, of uh, intelligence that they had and uh, the, the requirements was that the king had given that uh, when they choose these men that they were to be skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science and so forth. Well, if they studied all those things and if they, they were a studious type of, of a group of young boys, they probably were aware of the history of the children of Israel. They were probably acquainted with that. And God had put in the heart of Daniel, I believe, and uh, the three other Hebrews, something. He had planted something into their hearts through their, I say, their previous learning that they had before they were brought over and subjected to the learning of the Chaldeans. He had put something into their heart that they saw there was value. And as they looked probably at their dilemma, their spiritual dilemma and where they were at, and taken captive, they knew, they realized why they were where they were at. And they resolved in their heart that they would make a difference in their, in their uh, first in their own personal lives and those that they had contact with. And we know they did. We know they did. It's recorded in the scripture for us today. And it even makes a difference for us as we read these things. And so, tremendous lessons there for us. And then... <clears throat> We know that they were not about to compromise the boundaries and the and the uh, uh, convictions that they had. They were not they were not about to com- compromise. We know the account there about the golden image that they that the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. Well, you know, it's really not going to make a difference whether God will deliver us. We don't know whether He will or not. But one thing that we want to make clear is we will not bow. We will not bow. Talk about spiritual boundaries and commitment and not willing to compromise the truth. Tremendous there. Now, just to to conclude with the message then, uh, I know it was just a hurried overview a little bit of what was happening here and and, uh, possibly what was happening and just... uh, uh, scratching the surface, as we say at times. But now, just in conclusion for the message, as we conclude this message, what I'd like for us to think about, and I don't know if you think about it or not, but as I look at accounts like this and read about Babylon, and we could turn to uh, and turn to Revelations and read about Mr. Babylon and so forth, and we have all kinds of eschatology and people making predictions about those kind of things. But to keep it simple this morning, I would just like to remind us that we too have our Babylonian sieges that we have to do with. Do you believe that? I'm thinking in spiritual terms. We too 
or have we too have a, have a um, um, have to deal with the Babylon Babylonian, if I can say it right, influence today. We deal with it as we day by day we deal with the Babylonian influence. No, Nebuchadnezzar is not here, but Satan is the head of the Babylonian. Um, he's a, he's a, he's the head of the Babylonian nation, spiritually speaking. As we uh, look at that and as we consider what the scripture has to say, we are spiritually speaking, we too are in a spirit in the spiritual sense. We're under the Babylonian siege. We have to deal with the Babylonian influence daily. It's around us. We 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 too must this morning. We too must in the 21st century. We must draw boundaries. We must have spiritual commitments. We must have have lines that we will not cross. And maybe for many of us at this point, we haven't been tested all that much. But I believe, I believe we do ourselves a great injustice to just think that time will go on just as it has. As I reflect on my short lifetime, the last couple decades, and I'm not here to preach a doom and gloom. I'm here to preach encouragement and prepare us and encourage us to stand. We need this morning as much as they did in Nebuchadnezzar's day. We need Daniel's, Shadrach's, Meshach's, and Abednego's. We need boys and girls, men and women, who will not compromise, who are willing to stand for the truth. Whether God will deliver them physically or, or not is not really the question. But we need people that will stand for the truth, who are willing to speak up at the right time and the right place and make known what is the will of God and make known what is out of order and make known what the problem is and the reason that we find ourselves in this spiritual captivity in spiritually speaking Babylon. And um, maybe you think, well, it's not that bad. I think it's pretty bad. I really think it is. But you know what happens? We get back to the power of influence. We're influenced by what we see around us. The lukewarmness and the casualness about these things you think that doesn't influence me? You think it doesn't influence you? It can, and it certainly does, a lot more than we realize at times. And I'm just, I want this message to be a positive message to encourage us. But brethren, if we don't have something, if we don't have an anchor, if we don't have something, if we don't have the kind of commitment that these young men had, and if we don't have the kind of boundaries and things that are off line, that are that's the lines that in our lives that we won't cross, we're going to do what I'm assuming many of the many of the children of the Jews did. They just simply were assimilated into the Babylonian culture. In fact, if you look at history and you study history, when they went back to rebuild the temple and when they went back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there were those who chose to stay in Babylon. There were those who they weren't really that concerned. Can we draw some parallels today? In the spiritual Babylon that we're in, I believe they're all around us. We can. And so, you know, as I've looked at this message, or as looked at this scripture, and I just felt deeply constrained to, to, uh, to uh, preach a message on uh, what was happening there and what's happening now and what we may have to face in the future. But as we think of you know, as we if we do like I believe Daniel and his three friends did, if they read the chronicles and the the um, 
the manuscripts or whatever that was written up until their time, they knew, they knew what was happening and why it was happening. They probably knew the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those that had been prophesied a couple hundred years before. And they saw clearly the mercy of God, that it was God's hand that had been merciful to them through all these years. And finally, there was no more remedy. And God allowed. It was no God had, would have had much better things than having a Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked king, come in and punish them. But because of where they were at and what was happening, that God allowed this. And these young men, I believe, knew that. I believe they were not in dark. They were not in confusion. In fact, as we study the book of Daniel and we study history, they were not in confusion as to why things were as they were. They knew what was happening. And they knew it was because of the transgression of his people and they knew that it was because of for their good actually that God had allowed the Babylonian captivity it had been prophesied they were they knew of those things and even so this morning the scripture is full of prophecy and I for one don't believe that it's all fulfilled yet now I don't know I'm not here to say exactly uh, I'm not really interested in 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 uh, making a uh, concrete statements and things that I really don't know uh, for sure in my humanity. But uh, I do believe that we need to be aware. We need to have spiritual eyes. We need to be awake. We need to realize that the time we're in, and that's prophesied in Scripture, what uh, what, uh, uh, the end times will hold. Now, as encouragement for us, you know, there's been some wonderful things happened over the last decades, even in my short lifetime. Uh, as we think of, spiritually speaking, living in Babylon, if you want to call it that, and I hope you're okay with that. I um, hope you understand what I'm referring to. But uh, one of the things, you know, I think about even in our, well, I should back up. We, we, we speak about, you know, we, we value the Anabaptist heritage very much, and I think that's good. We, we look at that and we put a premium on that, that we're, you know, our Anabaptist heritage, as we call. But I'm not so sure just how well we fit in that at times. I just, and I, you know, I'm talking to myself. Well, we, we want to, we look at those things, but we have really never been tested like they have. We haven't. We, we you know, we've had it relatively nice. We, we, we've just, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's been some, there's been some bumps and things along the way, but, but basically we've had it pretty nice, but we value that, you know, and we owe it to ourselves and this generation to educate ourselves with that history and what they stood for and what they would not compromise and what their boundaries were, the spiritual boundaries were, and compare it, of course, with scripture. I'm not saying they did everything right, there was, you know, there was certainly there was things that were that you know they needed to, that were not uh, maybe always according to the scripture. But then, as we move on up, just quickly thinking a little bit more of maybe in my generation, uh, the the uh, young generation today doesn't know much about it. But for example, one one thing I think about is the the uh, the uh, forming of the Christian Day School. It's a tremendous blessing how God opened that door. And there was individuals that stepped out and pioneered the way for the Christian Day School. And uh, uh, people like Paul Landis, I can mention his name, there's probably no one here that's related to Paul Landis, but Paul Landis leaving the, 
Lancaster County, the garden spot of America, going down into the hills of Kentucky, and with a vision to publish literature. And then that, that vision developed on into to the need of, of, of a Bible-based curriculum. Remember so well the statement that was said that, uh, you know, um, Brother Maurice Martin, and he's no longer living here from Hagerstown, Maryland, made the statement some years ago. He said, we took our children out of Nebuchadnezzar's school, and he said, it's time we give them back our books. So you see the importance. We talked about learning and all the learning of the Chaldeans. You know, it was a one. It was definitely a, 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 a wonderful blessing to have our own schools and have the Christian Day schools. But we also need to. We don't need Nebuchadnezzar's books in our school. And uh, so, you know, th- those are a few things in my lifetime that I have seen that if, that uh, God has opened the doors to, and we're reaping uh, the blessings of that. We're seeing that in. I was not privileged. Uh, when I went to school, we pretty much used Nebuchadnezzar's books, if I may say, call them that. That's basically the education I had. But my children, and certainly today, we have like CLP and we have, uh, we have uh, Rod and Staff Publishers and other things. Tremendous blessing that we have today and uh, helps us to deal with our own Babylonian uh, captivity. So let's let's realize what we have this morning, and let's press on. Let's keep on, and realize that uh, uh, what some of these things cost. Most of us have little idea of even what the Christian Day movement costs our parents and grandparents and so forth. We know little about that. Didn't experience that himself. Thinking just as a concluding scripture here is does influence does it matter what you know what the influences are around us what kind of a bearing do they have on us well i just think of the scripture that paul reminded timothy of there in first timothy 4 he uh, no in second timothy 1 first timothy 4 is the scripture where paul says let no man despise thy youth i wanted to use that scripture yet too but second timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 Paul just simply reminds Timothy of the influence of his mother and his grandmother. And, uh, you know, Timothy had the influence of that. And it made a difference in his life. Paul reminded Timothy of that. Don't forget the influence that your mother and your grandmother and those had on him. And let's not forget that this morning, too. And let's uh, make those things, let's help... Let's use those things to further develop the work of the kingdom of God. Influence does matter. What we're exposed to. And, uh, and just as a challenge to you young men and you young ladies, uh, the younger generation. You know, us older ones, as Brother Jake shared in devotions this morning, I appreciate the positive spin that he put on that old age and where we're going and so forth. But, you know... We're at the age where we must decrease and the young generation must increase. And uh, I would just remind you of the scripture there in Second Timothy, uh, or First Timothy 4, verse 12, where Paul said to Timothy, as he instructed Timothy, you know, he said, give attendance to reading, to exhortation also, uh, and a number of things he mentioned. But he said that, and then he also said, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer 
in word, indeed, in conversation. But he was basically telling Timothy, he said, Timothy, let your influence be felt. Let it do its work. Be an example. You let it do its work. And wherever we go, wherever God calls us in our journey, and, uh, you know, sometimes, especially when you get to the end of life, we may think, well, our journey, what was it all like? But, you know, I've questioned that since we find ourselves back in Pennsylvania. But I know deep down that our circle of life being used in Kentucky as we were was an enriching experience spiritually for us. It definitely was. Even though we wonder sometimes, why does God take us on all these journeys and so forth? And so wherever God takes each one of you, my exhortation to us all this morning is that be a positive influence. We exert influence simply by being who we are, saying what we say and doing what we do. And I asked you this, what better service can we render to the kingdom of God than being a positive influence? It makes a difference. It made a difference for Daniel and his friends. It makes a difference for us today. Let's kneel for prayer.